All right, we're back with another episode of the St. Paul Filmcast, and today I have with me Dave Palomaro. Did I say it right? You got it right. All right. I, I rehearsed it in my mind pretty. Uh, Dave uh, screened a movie at uh, Crypticon, uh, Minnesota this year called Murdered Made Easy. I was actually got a chance to see it. Um, where, can, where, well, where, where are you screening it now? Where can people find Murder Made Easy now? Well, Nick, first of all, thank you so much for having me oh, on uh, oh, Film Cast. Yeah. To our screening at Crypticon, I really appreciate that, and I know you mentioned the movie or a few episodes back on your podcast, so I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah. That's, that's, it was a really nice of you. Um, currently, actually, it's, it's great that we're talking right now because we've been at the festivals for about a year, and we just wrapped up, and um, so we just... We just uh, we have some distribution news to share with people very shortly, so that's very exciting. So we'll be releasing this hopefully early 2019, so that people at home will we'll be able to see Murder Made Easy at Amazon Prime and all that good stuff. So that's some exciting news. So hopefully, from from now, if we just wait a couple months, we'll be able to find it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because I mean, for those of, those of your listeners that don't um, know too much about uh, how sort of these film festivals work and a lot of indie, indie films, you know, normally people take it on the film festival circuit for a bit. It, it just depends how long, you know, for us it's been right. about a year. And once you sign a distribution deal, you know, it doesn't come out like right away. Usually, you know, you have a certain amount of time to deliver the movie to the distributor and then they want, you know, a certain amount of lead time to do promotional stuff. So it's usually a couple months after you sign with a distributor. So, um, you know, for given where we're at, usually, hopefully it'll be you know, early 2019 and, you know, um, We'll definitely not be shy about telling people about it. So you know, we'll definitely try to get the word out to all the people out there who love horror, especially murder mysteries, because you know, it's very much like an Agatha Christie story, you know, or a play. So if you like that kind of thing, then you probably will like Murder Mystery. Right, and as I screen it, it. Um it's very yeah. It's very obvious. This is kind of like a murder mystery. There's some very much an investigation. You very much have to pay attention to the details of the movie. I, uh, Dave, have to give uh, kudos to your props department for wonderful arrangement and setup for this movie. Oh, what do you mean? Are you talking about the food or? Well, just the whole arrangement and how everything is placed. Um, I think the set design, especially because you're working in such a limited amount of room, is wonderful. So, yeah, because the story is basically, it's uh, two, these two characters, Joan and Michael, who are friends, and yeah. four of their friends come over for dinner. So we actually have four different dinners. So, um, I mean, you're right, you know, it, was, wasn't a, it was a, it was a low-budget film, <laughs> so yeah. we were limited, but I was very lucky to have tremendous help from not only the cast, but the crew, and, you know, when you have four different dinners and you see the food on screen, you make that look good and like a friend of mine her name is Jenny Robinson is a really great cook and she prepared all those meals last minute you know the whole idea of like taking this place over and redoing it and re- redesigning the interior because it wasn't it was designed very like family friendly you know what I mean it was like yeah it was our well I mean before we shot the film I mean like our, it was our writer's uh, place where he lived with his girlfriend at the time so she had decorated Different pictures 
talking about, I think I didn't necessarily take into account Um, I have to say, you did most of the editing for the movie? Um, yeah, well, editing duties were shared between myself and my friend Eric Rosenblum, who's an editor and a really, really, really talented editor, and I myself am an editor as well, but uh, it kind of worked good to sort of cut the film in half, if you will, and like, I did about half the movie, and he did half the movie. He basically did the second half of the film, uh, and plus, you know, he watched down early on when we had an early version of it and um, he was able he didn't know the script he didn't know anything so he was able to give some you know fresh eye kind of view of like so he was able to give some notes and helpful feedback that we eventually did incorporate into the movie and um, he had some of the more complicated scenes to to edit I kind of gave yeah. it to him because I knew they were harder <laughs> so um, but he's really talented and um, you know I would love to work on a project where I don't do any of the editing. I think it's great to have different perspectives. Right. Uh, people coming in. So he was really valuable for that. He did a great job with the sections that he edited, but he also was great for someone early on to take a step back and look at it and go, well, maybe you can do this. Maybe you can turn that up. I think that's kind of a valuable thing that one needs on a film, you know? Yeah, well, yeah, it's... Um Especially when two people are editing, there can be some friction. But it sounds like you guys got a, a really a smooth teamwork to go for with editing the movie. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we had worked together before. Um, we've worked on TV shows together, but we worked together on my previous film. It was a music documentary called In Heaven There Is No Beer. And that was very edit heavy, you know, because it was a documentary with hundreds of interviews and thousands of hours of live footage and photos and so uh he was one of many editors that helped me with that project and um you know he's just a really talented guy i mean he's just he's, and it's great to have um again a different perspective than your own to look at your film someone with fresh eyes that can kind of we did that a lot not just with eric but many people down the road as we were going through different versions of the film early early versions of the film you know other filmmakers uh, film producers i know we would we would show them the movie and they would give us notes and uh, it was very helpful in shaping the final version which you saw so I think it helped our movie to get input like that um, with the, the writing who wrote the screenplay for the movie yes oh, are you asking about our writer yes yeah. I'm sorry yes um, yes well I worked with a writer on this his name is Tim Davis and it's the second time I've done that I did co-write pretty much co-wrote a feature horror script called the house sitter okay and in in both cases i came up with the storyline and like an outline a detailed outline of the story and then in the oh. case of the house sitter i worked with my friend sue juvajan who's also a director she directed a, a film of her own and uh, that was great because i could give her the outline and she i thought she was great she wrote her film and i thought she was great with dialogue and all that and characters and that worked out very well so when murder made easy came about I wanted to do the same thing. I came up with the story and a detailed outline. The, the idea for the film and the story with all the twists and turns came to me one night when I was driving home from work. And I was like, I always loved murder mysteries and Agatha Christie kind of stuff and Sherlock Holmes. And this, I, 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 was, yeah. I was always like, well, maybe I can do a one location murder mystery that's cheap enough where I can produce it myself. And driving home from work one day, I came up, the whole outline came to me and I ran home 
jotted it down on a notepad before I forgot it. And then I wanted to work with a writer, so I met with Tim. He's someone I had worked with on TV shows before, and we were both big murder mystery fans, big fans of Sherlock Holmes and stuff. So I said, look, I know you like murder mysteries. I have this idea for an indie film. I met with him for lunch, and I pitched him the idea. You know, like I told him the idea, basically the synopsis, um, verbally, and he listened to me, and he was like, nah, I'm not sure. <laughs> and, so, and so I said, I said, look, I've got this written out treatment. It's very detailed. Take it home and read it and see what you think. And so he did, and he called me the next day, and he's like, yeah, this is great. I like this. I'll, I'll, let's do it. So apparently I'm a terrible pitch man. <laughs> my treatments are good. <laughs> and so, uh, and it's, it's been great. I like working with writers. I mean, I could attempt to write these projects myself, but I don't particularly think I'm a, a very good writer. Um, I think I'm learning, but I find, again, it's, it's sort of what we're talking about with working with a different editor. I think that working with other writers, you know, I come up with a story, but then to see them flesh it out, making it, making it into a full script, and then they bring their ideas to it, and there's a lot of back and forth about scenes and cutting stuff down and adding stuff and, you know, what if we went in this direction and things like that that I don't think... For me, I, you wouldn't get that if you tried to do everything yourself. So I think that that was what Tim brought to the uh, the project. Not to mention that we actually shot at his house, so he was right. nice enough to volunteer, or stupid enough, I don't know, to volunteer his place, <laughs> um, which turned out to be perfect for the movie. And um, everyone in the film was doing multiple jobs. You know, he helped with. He so he was our writer. He was the guy with the location. He was also like our post-production uh, coordinator, you know, our lead actress, Jessica Graham, is also our producer. So, and everyone on the set, because it was such a low-budget project, did multiple jobs. So, um, I just can't thank my crew enough. They, they, they're, they're the kind of people that are dedicated that make small films like this work because they just don't have money to throw at problems. So, you need to find really talented people to help you. And luckily, I was able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, especially when you narrow down location, because um, if you have one location, then you can you don't have to move equipment all the time. It's always there when you're ready to go. Is that kind of the case as well? Yeah, and obviously you save money because you're not going to different locations. You don't have to pay separate location keys. And yes, you're right. We, we were there um, all the time. And it you know, definitely cuts down on money for moving and having to pay location fees and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I mean, it, it still was very challenging. It was the first feature narrative film I did, and it was incredible to me that, like, even though it's like a murder mystery play it's just with a small amount of characters in a one-location thing, you know, takes takes place over the course of one night, and people are sitting and eating dinner. It sounds very mundane in terms of how you would do it. Yes. And it was extremely complicated and difficult. <laughs> you know, yeah. so... Um, I can't even imagine shooting a big action scene. This was really tough. So I guess no matter what you're shooting for a film or a TV show, everything is challenging. And um, uh, again, I was just really lucky to have a talented crew and cast behind me. Uh, and Dave, I know a lot of times with independent films, you don't have an opportunity to do a lot of pre-production stuff. Where Did you do storyboarding? Um, I, yeah, I did a bit of storyboarding, but I... Um, what basically I did was the film is shot with a lot of long takes, you know, scenes mm -hmm. that are like one shot that kind of move around, the camera moves around. And that was intentional because the film was very much like a murder mystery play. And so we wanted to shoot it that way in real time to give the actors, you know, long takes where they could act in real time and have that kind of play-like vibe. 
Plus, I'm a big fan of Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, and that was shot that way, and I always wanted to do a movie that way. Um, so yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm, really, I'm, I'm meticulous about planning and stuff like that. So in the script, there was a lot of um, sketches about camera placement and camera angles. And then we were lucky enough to shoot rehearsals at that location for six days, and I shot the entire rehearsal. Our cinematographer, Sherry Cop couldn't do it for rehearsal, unfortunately, but I shot the entire rehearsal with my iPhone, you know, shooting it with the angles I thought would work that I had planned out. Yeah. And then I actually cut together, actually cut together that rehearsal footage into like a movie, like a rehearsal version of the film. And that became like our visual storyboard. Um, so then Sherry Cock and I, our cinematographer, we sat down and watched the rehearsal footage. She listed all, all the shots and we went over each shot. And so it was very helpful to her to sort of like, she could see in my brain what I was thinking. You know what I mean? <laughs> all right. And then when we got to shooting the actual film, we had that rehearsal footage on an iPad and we would call up the shots when we needed to. Like, like what's the next shot? It was just one that moves around the table. And she would look at the rehearsal footage you know, right there on the set and she'd go, oh yeah, I remember that one, okay. And she sort of transposed it, if you will, to her equipment and to her, you know, for her abilities yeah. and stuff. But, but still, I thought that shooting the rehearsal and having this sort of visual storyboard was invaluable. And if I didn't have that, I would absolutely storyboard every frame. And for my next film, I would like to do that because I just think, at least for me, it works for me. It works for me to be pre-planned and thought out in a way to kind of say to your cinematographer, this is what I have in mind, given that we're going to change things on the set as needed and come up with other ideas, but here's at least a blueprint. I mean, I I just don't have the experience to just sort of wing it. You know what I mean? It would be very terrifying for me, but I like to pre-plan things, and I thought that was really uh, invaluable um, and saved us time on the set, too, so... Yeah, I think yeah, I think like the more, especially independent films, the more you prepare, the more you are ready to adapt. It helps out greatly with time and everything. Yeah, we found that to be true. Uh, with music, uh, who did the music? So my friend Sean Spillane did the music, and he was a musician that I knew from uh, a music scene that okay. I was a part of years back which was what my documentary was about. It was a music scene called Kiss or Kill that happened here in Los Angeles. So I was in a band and Sean was in a different band. And when that music scene dissolved and most of those bands kind of dissolved, he started doing uh, film composing, mostly for indie horror films. And he did did the music for a movie called The Woman uh, and Jug Face and a bunch of other indie films. Uh, So, you know, I was aware of his work as a film composer. And when I came up with this idea and I had a rough cut of the film. I, I called him up. I said, Hey, you know, I just, I did this film. It's my first feature narrative. Would you be interested? And luckily enough, he said yes. And he was actually one of the first people to see the film. Okay. And, okay. um, you know, the first thing he asked me when he saw the movie was what kind of tone do you want to set? And I was like, I don't know. That's a good question. So he and I spent a lot of time working on the music and what kind of tone we wanted to set with the music and how the music could set that tone and also going back and forth about, you know, when do we have music? It's a very dialogue heavy movie. Like I said, it's very much like a play. So yes, it is. Yep. Yeah. When do we let the dialogue play out? When do we have music? You know, and that was really complicated process and took a lot of trial and error to get that right. But since he had composed films before, he sort of like guided me through the process. He was very patient and he came up with, and when there was multiple multiple times, I would say, oh, that's not working, that's not working. He had no problem coming up with alternative ideas for music, pieces of music. And um, 
yeah, I can't say enough great things about Sean. He's a very talented guy, and he he made the film really work and tied everything together. And um, I'm very grateful that he agreed to work on my movie. You know, so well, I I have to say it very well complements the movie because it matches very much to the characters' personas throughout the film, right? Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's it's funny. I think as a layman, when it comes to film composition, you know, when when you see a movie and it and it's got great music, it's just effortless, and you don't think about it. For, you know, a great John Williams score or something, right? It, it just yeah, works yeah, work, yeah. You don't think about it, and that's it's invisible in a way, even though it's not. And um, again, our film is very small; it's just a bunch of people talking. But um, working with Sean and seeing how difficult it is to come up with a whole, you know, hour and a half's worth of mu- worth of music to fit a whole film so the film is like a blank page and you got to fill it up with music like it's it, it's a huge task and you know sean had that experience so he knew how you know how to get there it just took a while and he did come up with themes for the different characters and he came up with reoccurring themes that would happen uh throughout the film that keep coming up but it didn't happen overnight you know it took a while for us to figure that out and you just have to have patience, you know, when you're working with somebody that's super talented like he is. It's um, it's it's the whole movie's process. So it was a really great experience. Like I said, I feel very lucky that he was our composer. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, who shot the film for you? Another individual that we were lucky to get. So we had we um, sort of talked with a bunch of different cinematographers. And okay. We, we actually were going to be using um, <clears throat> our friend Lo, who's a, she's a great cinematographer, and she was super close to shooting it for us, but then she got, a, a you know, her regular gig uh, on the TV show came back earlier than expected. And, you know, of course, they paid her really well, and, you know, that's her day job, and I told right, her yeah. and so she had to go back to the TV show. Um, so through our lead actress, Jessica Graham, who she had worked with this uh, cinematographer called Sherry Cock, and I met with Sherry, and I pitched her the idea. I said, look, it's like a play. It's like Hitchcock's Rope. We're going to shoot it that way with these long takes. We don't have a lot of money. <laughs> you know, We don't have money for steady cams or dollies. We don't have money for a full camera crew. And I gave her the pitch, and she was like, sure, let's do it. I like <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, and I'll tell you, Sherry is something special. Like, on the set, it was very challenging and she never said we can't do that or that's impossible. She always was like, okay, let, let's, let's think about it a different way or maybe there's a different way we can approach this. And she always came up with solutions and she was never about it can't be done. She was about, we can do it. <laughs> Excuse me. So that was incredible. And again, she didn't have a full camera crew. She was, you know, doing these long takes, pulling her own focus. We didn't even have video monitors, but they call it video village. And so, right. Wow. Know, we just didn't have money for it. So there were plenty of times where I had to hide around the corner because this camera shooting all around the space, almost like 360. And I had to just listen to the performances. Um, and usually I'm pretty anal about looking at the footage. You know, I want to see it right away when we shoot it. I want to go home and look at it. And once I sort of put that trust with Sherry, I stopped looking at the footage every day and I could just concentrate on the next day's shoot and give him, getting what getting what we needed and in fact I didn't look at I would say 90% of the footage I didn't even see until we were done shooting because that's how much confidence I had in Sherry that I knew she was you know I knew she knew what she was doing and she she just knocked it out of the park I mean she, she's great I, I can't right. work, wait to work with her again honestly so right I, I, to have her. 
you guys framed it. I, I think it's, it's really nicely framed because it's very intimate. Most of the movie, it's a very intimate scene, even though it's not like a whole wide. I mean, you get to understand it's a living room, but you understand this is a very intimate story and it's for shot very intimate. I love it. Yeah, well, I mean, again, that's that's all on Sherry, and she sort of convinced me to, this is getting into the technical camera work stuff, mumbo-jumbo, but um, <laughs> her idea, basically she was like, because of what you're talking about, right, it's a bunch of people talking in a small space, Yes. Uh, how do we make it look cinematic instead of like, a, you know, a reality show or something where people are just following people around with a camera, and so her idea was to use an anamorphic lens, which is not a wide-angle lens, it's just it's a wider aspect ratio and it also has a shallow depth of field, meaning that, you know, like characters in the foreground are in focus, but the background is not. So it creates like a cinematic look. Yep. And, um, I was really intimidated by that anamorphic lens. You know, there's some technical limitations to it. You can't get closer than four feet to somebody or anything and have it stay in focus and a lot of little things like that. And I was like, I don't know, I don't know. If but she did a couple camera tests. And once I saw where she was going, I'm like, that looks great. I like it. And, and we were off and running. So, you know, she's, she's incredible. Um, with, uh, the performances, you have a very large ensemble cast with that already in mind when you wrote the script that you wanted more than just a few people that you wanted, maybe five or six real dominant characters in the story. Yeah. The, the story, again, when I came up with the story structure, it came to me very quickly. You know, I don't, I don't usually get ideas that quickly. <laughs> I'm also not a twist guy, like M. Night Shyamalan, wherever you pronounce his last name. I don't sit around thinking about cool twists for stories. Um, but the whole structure of it came to me very quickly. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, so the idea that there would be two hosts and there would be four dinner guests you yeah. know, came to me came to me very quickly and how they would all come at different times. They arrive at different times. It's a little bit unusual. Like, you know, usually you have a, a, a dinner party murder mystery or something like that, or even like a sleepaway camp thing where, you know, there's like 10 teenagers and they get knocked off one at a time. And the story structure I came up with is that each guest arrives, you know, separately, which is a little bit different. And yeah, it just, that the amount of cast just came to me because that's the way the story came to me. So, um, you know, the challenge was then how do we, you know, every time a new person shows up, how do we then wrap it up the, the tension and stuff like that when we started working with Tim, our writer, to kind of hash that out. But really the amount of characters and stuff like that was just, you know, necessitated by that's the story that came to me at that time. So, yeah. So uh, what was the prof process for looking for actors? Did you do auditions or you just kind of network or how did you come about finding the actors and actresses? Well, it's a little bit of both, actually. Our two lead actors, Jessica Graham and Christopher Sloan Kelly, I had already seen at film festivals. I had okay. seen their film. Yeah, and uh, back in 2013 and 2015 is when I saw some of their movies. I saw a short film that Chris acted in and directed called Chaucier, and it was almost like a one-man play. He was like oh. talking, the very first part of that movie, most of it is him just talking directly to camera. And I was like blown away. I was like, this guy's incredible. Like I got to work with him. And then the next film I saw was another short film he directed with him and Jessica. And I'm like, these guys would be great for the leads for our film. So I approached them and they read the script and they're like, sure, let's do it. And then Jessica also came aboard as our producer and she helped me through the casting process. Okay. I didn't have a, a lot of experience with that. So the other actors we did do a traditional, you know, we rented a space with a camera and, 
had a bunch of people come in and, and read some lines. And it was just a matter of, you know, process of elimination. So um, I feel very lucky that we found all our actors, and I think they did a great job. So, yeah. How long did the um, pro- high, the whole uh, acting process take? How long did it take to find everybody? Uh, well, Chris and Jessica, of course, were on board earlier, but uh, I would say once we started auditions for the other actors, it was fairly quick. I want to okay. say uh, within a couple months, we had all our actors. All right. So, yeah. I mean, I, I will say that um, I have to give a shout-out to uh, um, Edmund Lipinski, Eddie Lipinski, who plays the professor at yes. character film, because um, he had a different actor that we cast for that role, and the night before that actor was supposed to shoot, he got pneumonia. Oh, he no. really ill, and he couldn't, yeah, this is stuff that happens when you make a film, he couldn't do it, um, and... You know, Jessica, acting as our producer, said, we don't have time to wait for him. Unfortunately, we don't have the money. We can't switch the schedule around. So we called up a number two choice that we auditioned, who we liked a lot, too, and that was Eddie. And I called him up that night, and he was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. So, you know, Eddie didn't know he was going to do the role. He had auditioned, <laughs> you know, weeks earlier. So he had to learn all this long dialogue and come in, and he did a tremendous job. So that's the kind of stuff you encounter doing a small indie film, and you know, again, we were lucky to have talented cast and crew, people like Eddie, who, you know, came in and did it. Uh, did uh, Eddie bring his own cane, or did somebody bring it for him? <laughs> our cane, the cane that he uses came from our illustrious and, uh, you know, huge prop department, <laughs> which is me. <laughs> you know, it's consisted of, uh, there was one closet, actually, it was a bathroom, it was a downstairs bathroom, so we could never show in the film. That became the prop room. <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was basically me, you know, keeping all the props and stuff like that. Like, again, everyone had to wear multiple hats, so I was a prop guy. <laughs> so. um, how did you arrange costumes? Did you let the actors help you as the, the costumes, or do you find somebody to work arrange costumes? Uh, no, we didn't have, you know, the money to hire somebody, so I basically worked with the actors on, on their costumes. Okay, you know, all right. Take, Take their suggestions and things like that, but I did go out, you know, and try different things for different for the actors, and and we did purchase some stuff. I mean, I had a pretty clear idea what I wanted for the two weeks, so um, we had that worked out, and then Jessica and I jointly um, picked out her dress that she's wearing. We went to actually a vintage shop here in Burbank, California. They're newer clothes, but they're all like inspired by 40s and 50s kind of stuff, and they had a lot of. We did some research on my part, and I found them online. Like, oh, they're here in Burbank, and we went to their store, and they had a lot of great stuff that would fit their characters, so we picked something we both liked. And that's how we did it for the other actors. Um, and, you know, it, it worked. We used their wardrobe if they had something that I was requesting, and if not, I would go out and buy it. Um, so, you know, as a director for a no-budget or, very, you know, very low-budget film, you kind of wear a lot of hats, as was a lot yeah. of the right. cast and crew. Like I said, Tim had a lot of stuff that he was doing, and... Like our hair and makeup person, she was also our special effects person. It was that kind of stuff, you know. Like everyone had to do multiple things because we just didn't have the budget for, you know, a bigger a bigger crew. Um, with uh, costuming, I would say Cricket had probably had the most fun picking her outfit, right? Yeah, and that, that's a tricky <laughs> that's a tricky character. Cricket is sort of this hippy dippy new age person, so right. you don't want it to be a caricature. Um, uh, and I, that was actually another local store that uh, her, I guess it's a shirt kind of thing, but it's, uh, it was, you know, hippie-dippie enough, but not ridiculous. It wasn't like a tie-dye t-shirt, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, 
And it was great to sort of um, patronize some of these local businesses here in LA that, you know, where we could find more custom-made clothes, if I, you know, as long as I could afford it. Um, and yeah, that was fun, you know. All the rings she's wearing are my sister's rings. My sister's is crazy about rings and she makes them. Oh, really? Her, really? Yeah, I had her mail me like 20 rings. <laughs> so we, All right. Yeah, so, and you know, she's wearing crystals. So there's a little, I mean, we've been lucky that we've been mostly getting really positive reviews, but there are some people who called out her character. A lot of people like her character. Some people think she's a little over the top. Um, but I think we walked that line with her. Like I said, she, she, she doesn't have like a, you know, she doesn't have like a peace necklace or something like that. We didn't right. want a 70s, you know, cliche of a hippie. We want someone who's more new age. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, given our, you know, our time and money constraints, I'm pretty, pretty happy with our, our wardrobe, you know? Yep. But I think it's like, it goes back to your, your question about set decoration and stuff like that. Is that, you know, it is important to think about those things. And even if you can't, maybe you can, like, there's a, there's a picture with a wedding dress, for example. My sister yep. sent her wedding dress. And that's how we saved money. I'm like, how am I going to get a wedding dress? I think they can be very expensive. We could rent one. So you have to think of clever ways to, um, you know, to sort of overcome these obstacles and still add a little production value in your film, even though you don't have the money to. So that's, you know, necessity is a mother of invention kind of thing. Um, did you have time with all the actors to do read-throughs? We did, actually, yeah. That yeah, was okay. Nice too. We, we had six days of rehearsal that I shot on my iPhone at the location, and prior to that, we came to my apartment and um, had all the actors sit around in a circle and do a read-through, um, and then I was able to kind of give them some notes on, on their performances and stuff like that. So I think we had ample time in pre-production to work with them. I think it was just a matter of, like everyone else, when you start shooting, it's a, it's a mathematical equation. You know, you have this amount yeah. of budget, and you have to spend this much every day, and you know, that gives you X days to finish, you know, and basically, our pace was, we were shooting between 12 and 14 pages of the script a day, which my understanding is that's kind of crazy. I think normally they do three to five pages a day. Yeah. Um, and that's just was necessitated by the fact that we didn't have more money in the budget to go, you know, to do more days. So it becomes a mathematical equation. You know, here's your budget and you have this much material to get through. So, uh, again, you know, I give a lot of praise and thanks to the cast and crew. They, they, they pushed us through and they got us through. So that was incredible. Um, most of the characters in the movie have very full backstories. Did you put that in the script or some of the actors work with you with that? You know, that's great. Thank you for saying that. I mean, yeah. Tim and I worked on that. Uh, that uh, most of that was in the script. You know, we okay. when we came up, when we started really getting detailed about this story, I had the story outlined, but when we started really thinking about it, we, we spent a lot of time going, okay, how are these people connected? You know, where do they come from? What are, what are they, what do they want? And stuff like that. And I think more of that conversation came once uh, we worked with the two leads, Jessica Graham and Christopher Soren Kelly. You know, Jessica was our producer, but Chris is also very hands-on as an actor. He wants to know this stuff. And there were a lot of meetings between our two lead actors and me and Tim, the writer, and we would just sit down, you know, for dinner or at my place and we would, we would hash this stuff out. I mean, there is a lot of, you know, it seems like it's kind of like a quirky little murder mystery, but we did put a lot of thought into who are these characters and what are their motivations and, you know, how do they all know each other? And so there was a lot of thought put into that process. And that was, you know, another eye-opening thing is that I think that it, it's worth it. Even if some of that stuff doesn't appear on screen, it, then I can take that to the actor. Sure. Know, I can yeah. go, we've workshopped this character and here's 
here's some other information. Here's the words on the page, but then here's some other stuff that might help you, you know. So, yeah, it was very helpful. Um, obviously, um, coming up is Thanksgiving, is dinner, and in the movie, you have uh, quite a bit of dinner. Did you actually guys eat the food that's presented in the movie? Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> like I said, my, my friend Jenny Robinson made the food, yeah. and I have to give another shout out to her. She was up till 5 a.m. the day before our first day of shooting, making all this food, you know, giving me detailed instructions on how to reheat it, so it was all pre-made and pre-cooked. Okay. Um, and... The two people that ate the food the most once we were done shooting, each each dinner scene once it was wrapped out, was myself and the lead actress, Jessica Graham. Both of us were, were munching on that food for days, and it was amazing. The food was really, really good. <laughs> so, yeah, it just doesn't, hopefully it looks good on camera, but it actually tasted even better. So, um, and it's funny, I'm actually going to uh, Jenny's place for Thanksgiving, so. <laughs> really? <laughs> Yeah, she does. She does like an orphan Thanksgiving. I don't come back east home uh, you know, to see my family for the holidays. She gets a bunch of people together, and um, I'm looking forward to it because uh, the food was quite good. <laughs> it was really, really good. Um, with the, I would like to mention because uh, you have quite a bit of ensemble cast, and a lot of them played loud characters, like Krika. She's a very loud character. But another one that I really gravitated to was intense as uh, the uh, the gentleman who played Damien. Oh, yes. I love that. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I think a lot of that the actors themselves brought to the table. It's really interesting, actually, you mentioned that, because the character of Cricket, who's a new age kind of hippie, uh, she was very big. You know, her performance is very big. And I think I was just constantly trying to get her to you know, make her performance a bit smaller, you know, and right. not so big. Um, and with Daniel, I love both of what they did, but Daniel was the opposite, like, he was. He approached his character very soft-spoken, very. And I remember in the rehearsals, I thought he was a bit more, you know, he a bit more louder, if you will, with his performance, and so I could kind of read it better. And once we started shooting, he was very soft-spoken, very quiet. You know, of course, I'm not listening to the sound mix that the audio guys recording. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I thought, oh, this isn't going to work. It's not. It's not reading. I mean, his acting's really good, but it's not reading. I can't hear him good enough. And then once I saw the footage, I'm like, oh, this is great. You know, because he. He, that's how he approached his character. You know, he had his own interpretation of it, and that's a great example of how the individual actors can bring their own little spin to it. And, and by the way, Daniel was phenomenal because he he came in for his audition, and as soon as he read his first lines, I'm like, "That's baby." <laughs> you know, seriously, like, he's not like that. He's a super nice guy because the character is kind of smarmy and kind of selfish. And, right. Like as soon as he right. read his character in the audition, I'm like, "Wow!" I, me and Tim look at each other like, "Holy crap!" Like. He just came in to the audition with that character fully realized, and it was a pretty incredible thing. So, you know, again, I keep thanking my cast and crew, but you realize how much you need people behind you to make a film hopefully successful of ours. And so um, I, I'm just really proud of them and grateful that I got to work with these people. Uh, did you uh, encourage a little bit of homework of watching like Agatha Christie or uh, movies or books uh, prior to shooting? Absolutely, especially um, when I met with Tim, our writer, yeah. excuse me, and our cinematographer, and um, and some of our actors as well. Um, I said, you know, I think the films I wanted them to see was Hitchcock's Rope, which is a big influence, and yes, Murder, on yeah. the Murder on the Orient Express, the 70s version. I saw the new one. I like the new one, too. And um, two other films, Sleuth and Death Trap, um, both from the 70s, I believe, which were both 
murder mystery plays before they were turned into films. And I think it really helped them, our writer, you know, to kind of get his headspace into what we were trying to do. And, you know, it definitely helped Sherry Cock, our cinematographer, who really wanted any kind of reference that she could get um, to kind of frame, I mean, figuratively and literally kind yeah. of frame where we're, where we're, what we were trying to accomplish. And, um, yeah, I would, I would reference those movies and, if people were interested in the casting crew that they wanted to see him, I would definitely, you know, make them available. So I, I thought that was very helpful. I think, especially when you're coming up with a look of a film, from, especially from the camera work and cinematography point, you know, you kind of have to build it from the ground up with, uh, like, a lot of the components of making a film. And so what is the film going to look like? You know, how, what kind of color palette do you want? All the stuff that Sherry was asking me. And so we would use previous films to kind of like hone in on what we wanted or she would pitch me an idea like, what about this? And she'd show me a previous film or a TV show. I'm like, I don't know, but what about that? It really helps you kind of get on the same page about what you're trying to accomplish. Um, one of the best advices when I was doing my comic book was um, add a little comedy to it. And I think you got the right amount of comedy in the movie, even though it's not a comedy where you kind of really emphasizing that she, it should have some little bit of funny into it. Absolutely. If you look at those films that we were influenced by, you know, Rope, Sleuth, Death Trap, and even some of Agatha Christie's stuff, for sure, there's this dark, witty humor that's sprinkled throughout. And we were very, Tim and I were very conscious of that, and that was definitely really, absolutely on purpose. We wanted, you know, it's a pretty dark subject matter if you look at it from a a certain point of view, and you you could frame it that way if you wanted to, but we wanted to sprinkle it with humor and dark humor to kind of keep liven up the moment, give the audience a bit of, you know, breathing room and then contrast that with some of the more darker points. So that was absolutely intended. And we, we worked hard on it and I wasn't sure if some of that humor was going to play. It's actually very difficult. <laughs> it's a lot more difficult to add that in there than, than you think. than I thought, and, um, it's very like our, you were there at the screening at Crypticon. That was one of the better, you know, best reactions we got from the crowd. We've been getting pretty good reactions overall, but like, it was very interactive and people were laughing at the right time. And then whenever you hear that, you just go, oh, okay, I guess yeah. this, this is working. You know, but you don't really know. You just don't really know until you see it with an audience. So. Yeah, I don't want to give um, the scene. I don't want to give the scene away. But there was one certain scene that I think everybody caught, and I think Minnesotans love. They love a little bit of dark comedy as well. It got a, oh great. Yeah. Oh great. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. So I appreciate. Um, do you kind of continue on a, um, with the next kind of projects? Are you going to continue on with the genre, or are you exploring other ones? Uh, yeah, I'm going to sort of go towards more towards horror, you know, the, the aforementioned The House Sitter script, um, which I worked on with my friend Suju, is yeah. hopefully the next project that we'll actually make into a film. And, um, you yeah, we had some success with that script, sending it to script contests, and for a while there, some people around, you know, Hollywood were interested in it. Um, it's that's challenging because it needs a proper budget, you know, a bigger budget than what we had from River Made Easy, and so we're just in the middle of that trying to figure out how to fund it, and I would love for that to be my next film and take what I've learned from Murder Made Easy and apply it to, you know, this horror film. I'm not, I love horror and thrillers. It's not, they're not the only thing that I like. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, for example, but um, there's some of my favorite films are in that genre. You know, like Silence of the Lambs is one of my favorite films of all time. Ooh, yes, of course. Yes. Yeah, and anything Hitchcock does, you know, so I, I really am a big fan of that stuff and, you know, it's a learning process, you know, and so you just kind of take what you learn from your first film and hopefully you can do better on your next one. And that, that would be my goal. I mean, hopefully. 
Do you? How, how many movies do you kind of watch a week? How many? Do you know, Dave? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, for me, it comes in spurts. You okay. know, I mean, there might be a day where I see three or four or five films in a day. You know, um, and then I might be, I might take a break um, for a few weeks. Uh, I'm, cer- I'm certainly not somebody who sees, you know, two films a day or every weekend. I'm seeing, you know, twelve films or something like that. But, right. Um, it, it's, it's definitely a healthy part of my viewing diet, <laughs> and um, I think when I get into the mood, I, I can I can binge watch the entire series. I can binge watch, you know, three or four or five films a night easily. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I think you could, it's, it's weird. I tell you, it's strange. Not strange, but coming at it from now having made my first narrative feature film, you know, you really do learn. There is the audience part of your brain that just enjoys films. And, you know, when you see something... Yeah, like, yeah. And then there's also now kind of becoming this director-producer side of my brain, which is like, oh, wow, how did they do that? Or that's a really interesting use of lighting that, that you sort of can kind of pick and learn from other people just from watching. So that's been kind of a fun experience, you know, um, sort of now that we put music into a film or now that we you know, work with a cinematographer, like I can now look at, see a film and also break it down into those components and become inspired and, and hopefully learn and become better, hopefully, you know? Right. Uh, do you, you, you still working on writing? I know you said writing's not the strong suit and you kind of just frame a story. Are you still kind of doing that as well? Um, not, not since, not since the horror script and murder made easy. Um, I mean, there was, ah, that's actually not true. There was there, there's a there's okay. a, there's some things that I did that I did work on myself, um, and I, I definitely think I'm I'm getting better at the writing part of it, uh, learning from working with writers and stuff like that. Um, but uh, the house of the horoscope, we're actually going to take another pass on it. You know, it's another thing I learned that you continually you know improving the script, and even when you put the film together, it's not unusual. It's pretty common, even for big movies. You know, they do reshoots and they go through hundred edits, you know, to kind of like hone it in. And you almost do like a script pass on the, on the movie late in the, in the game. Like I said, what we did, we were, you know, we showed it to film producers and we showed it to uh, other film directors and filmmakers and got a lot of feedback. And if a lot of people are saying the same thing, you know, it's like, oh yeah, maybe they're all right. Maybe this scene could get cut down. And, you know, you kind of like, you do another script pass. I mean, our first edit of our film was 87 minutes. And that's right where I wanted it to be. I wanted okay. it to be about eight, ninety minutes. And then when we got a lot of feedback from people, you know, a lot of people were saying, "Oh, you can cut it down. You can cut it down." And we wound up taking out eleven minutes, so it's, you know, seventy-six minutes. It's its final runtime, and it works for the movie, you know. And the stuff that we took out, no one ever says, "Hey, well, didn't you guys have a couple extra scenes?" I'm feeling like you're <laughs> no one ever says that about movies, so um, unless it's totally confusing. And so that's almost like a script pass in a way because you. There were, there were extra scenes we took out. There were scenes we condensed, you know? Um, so, you know, my goal is to, to continue working on my uh, house sitter horror script and, and get that up and running. And, um, and like I said, try to just keep learning and, and do better. Hey, Dave, uh, would you ever be interested in shooting a black and white film? Sure, why not? <laughs> you know? Um, I mean... I think from working with uh, Sherry, our cinematographer, when she yeah. came to me and said, hey, I want to use the anamorphic lens for this, you know, me, me anamorphic meant like Lawrence of Arabia and like big, wide scope, you know, sweeping, <laughs> and like, why would, you, why would you use an anamorphic for an inside film? Um, so what I learned is that anything's on a table, you know, if it 
fits with what you're trying to do, even if it doesn't seem to fit with what you're trying to do, why not try it? Sure. We actually do I like that. Bit, we have a we actually have a little bit of black and white in our film. That's why I was gonna. That's kind of what I was gonna ask because I have it on my notes. There's a little bit of, of monochromatic in the movie. Yeah. So I think um, uh, what's his name? Oh gosh, I always get names of people wrong. But Alfonso Curzon, which is the guy who did Gravity, and I'm so bad with names. He did Gravity, and he did um, Children of Men. His new new film, which is called Roma, is shot in black and white. You know. Yeah. Uh, I remember, even though it was Steven Spielberg, I think he had to sort of battle with the studios to make Schiller's List black and white, even though there's some color in there. Um, uh, I think Citizen Kane was in black and white. That film seems to do okay. <laughs> yeah, it did all right. Yeah, it did all right. So uh, I think it's a, you know, you, you see a lot of experimentation now, which is kind of nice. And you see a lot of people shooting in the 4 by 3 format, which is that square, you know, when TVs were square, you know. And so... It's funny, we've gotten so widescreen and HD and all that, so now people are doing, like, the 4 by 3 thing, you know, to give it, like, a retro feel or something. I think all those things are on the table, and I, you know, if it kind of fits with what you're trying to do and it fits with the the, uh, the themes of your your film, well, why not? I, I, I mean, I feel like, I don't know, you know, I feel like anything's it's up for grabs, you know? Do you, can you watch any movie? Do you, you can know any genres on the table? You know, pretty much, yeah. I, I, I love films in general. I think, um, I'm trying to think, musicals are probably not my favorite. <laughs> <You know? laughs> all right, all right, yeah. Um, and I, I probably dramas are not, you know, if they had a percentage of the films that Dave Palomaro watches, I don't think dramas, I like dramas, actually. But um, I see, I seem to gravitate towards sci-fi. I seem to gravitate towards thriller and horror. Um, and, uh, you know, but I, I love good, great drama, you know, something like Better Call Saul, which is, you know, it has even less genre elements to it than a Breaking Bad did. Right. And I find I find Better Call Saul like fascinating because the characters are so well written. Um, and there's nothing. If it's a great story, it's a great to me. If it's a great story, it's a great story no matter what genre it is. You know. So. Right. Um, right. Well, yeah, I I don't know uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the the film director Samuel Fuller. Um, he did uh he was working for MGM in the 50s and 60s and. Um, Tim Robbins asked him what makes a great movie, and he said a great story. And then Tim Robbins asked him again, "Well, what makes a great story?" And he says, "I bleeping told you, it's a great story." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I, to me, like some, sometimes people ask me, "Well, why do you gravitate towards stuff like horror and stuff like that?" And to me, um, it's like it's like a bunch of people sitting around a campfire going, oh, "I got a scare, scare." Yes. Story. Yeah. A guy with a hook for a hand, and he's chasing after a bunch of people, and you know. And you listen to the story and you go, oh, it's like a roller coaster ride, you know? And, um, yeah, I think there's something to be, it's not an exact science, and even for big studios and stuff like that, but there's just something magical when it all comes together. You know, you see a movie like Silence of the Lambs, and uh, you're like, wow, that's incredible, you know? Or for me, the first season of True Detective was, was a masterpiece, and you watch that and you go, holy mackerel, you know, you don't, as an audience member, you don't think about how hard the shoot was for them or any of that other stuff. It just, it comes together. It was made by professionals, but there's also some weird magic going on there. You know, that just it all comes together with the acting and the directing, and uh, yeah, it's great stuff. You know, so I'm glad. I'm uh, glad you. Uh, I'm glad you cited first season of True Detective. It was phenomenal. It really was. I, I agree. I agree, and I think that they just really had the special ingredients that all came together. You know, the writer and director. Kari Fukunaga, who I think is very talented, and you know I've seen his film *Beasts of Donation*, and 
I thought that was a phenomenal movie, and you know, I think he's he's a super talented guy. But I think they had two phenomenal actors, and you know, the story I think was something the writer had worked on for a very long time, so it was very well thought out. And I think that's what's cool about what's going on now is that you know, yeah, you have these big blockbusters, which I love yeah. too, but especially on like you know HBO and cable and streaming service and. You know, you have a lot of adult-oriented, like, dramas and stuff like that that are being financed and have big budgets, and so there's some great, great stuff out there to find, you know? Um, there was a great show called, completely different than the genre thing, it was called Halt and Catch Fire on AMC, and, you know, it's, I don't know if you saw it, but it's about... No, I didn't. What? I don't... Go, yeah, tell me, tell me. Yeah, it's the first four seasons. Uh, sorry, it is four seasons, but it's about the birth of, like, the computer revolution, and then later on, later seasons, it goes into, like, the internet... And it's basically centers on mostly these four or five characters. And it sounds like it would be pretty dull kind of pitch, but when it's just, you get sucked into it, the characters are great and it's right. very well written. And, um, you know, it didn't, it, it didn't have a huge viewership, but it, a lot of critics like it. So they kept it going. And of course, AMC does the walking dead. So they could you know, take the walking dead money and, and keep afloat some of these other smaller shows. But, um, you know, Again, you know, it doesn't matter to me what the genre is. If it's a great film, it's a great film, you know, so. Yeah. Well, uh, Dave, I understand you used to do music prior to film. What was your uh, instrument? Uh, yes, I'm a drummer. And ah, so, all right. Yeah. So when when I was in college, I did go to film school and did some student films and things like that. And But I've I been playing music and playing drums my whole life. So when I got to L.A., I kind of got, got away from doing films and I got involved with a music scene called Kiss or Kill that I mentioned and and that's what kind of got me back into making films because I was like this is a great music scene with great bands and great community of people that all support one another which is a little bit unusual for LA <laughs> and I thought someone should do a documentary about this before it goes away which of course it did go away and I grabbed the camera and started doing interviews and that kind of lit the fire to get back into filmmaking was making that documentary and, and that was a great experience and went to film festivals and you know, I met a lot of people along the way, and that in turn inspired me to to do something like Murder Made Easy, and and you know, start trying my hand at the narrative stuff, and and so yeah, it's been a weird kind of circle how how music and film has kind of um, come in and out of my life, but um, yeah, I mean, uh, music is a and a lot of people see some of my work, especially as an editor, and they go, oh, you have a very you know rhythmic sense. I'm like, do I? I don't really make that connection. I just kind of do what I do. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, I love music. I think music is another art form that can kind of trans, you know, transport you to, you know, a place and really inspire you. And I think some of the best filmmakers that we have use music incredibly. You think of someone like, uh, Martin Scorsese or sure. Quentin Tarantino, sure. um, and you're like, wow, that it just elevates both the scene and the music and the film. You're like, that's incredible, you know? And, um, yeah, I, again, it's another that's another form of art that I think is very inspiring. You know. Well, I have to give a small confession to you today, Dave. I I used to be in a band. In fact, the intro music is the music from the band, and I used to be a drummer. That's me drumming in the intro. Well, you mean used to be? Did you did you did you, uh, you still have your arms and stuff, right? Well, the band the band went away. Um, so, some of them got married and started a brewery. One in went the military. And then I started my comic book and podcasting. But you're still, but you, you still play drums, right? Uh, no, I sold them. I had a Yamaha wow. Oak. I had a Yamaha Oak Cup a custom drum kit. Wow, that's a nice one. It is a nice one. What was your? What's your brand? 
Uh, I'm a big Tama guy because of most of oh. my two favorite drummers are like Neil Burton, who doesn't use Tama, he hasn't for years, but uh, Stuart Copeland, who's a Tama guy, so, you know, <laughs> I just love classic, the first set. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I totally see where you know where you're coming from. A lot of the bands I played with and people in that music scene, you know, that, that was that was involved with. A lot of them, obviously, you get older, you move on, you have kids and stuff like that. A few of them, a few of them are still going. There's a band called the Dotley Rocks that are still doing their thing. Sure. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, yeah, I feel like uh, there, was a, there was a time period where I, I kind of stopped drumming and I think it, I wasn't very happy. So even if I'm not, I'm not playing with musicians, I still try to take time to practice and play. I, I enjoy it a lot. I really enjoy drumming. It's a lot of fun, as you know. <laughs> you sit up there on stage or in your practice room and just yeah. do things really hard. I mean, how, how can you not have fun, you know? <laughs> right, yes, yeah. Well, Dave, I have to say, well, thanks for coming on and talking about the the movie Murder Made Easy. I had a wonderful time watching it, man. It was a great movie. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You came out to Crypticon and watched it, and thank you for supporting the movie, and we should have distribution news, like I said, in a couple months, so we'll be able to get it out to the public in early 2019. I can't wait for, for people to see it. Oh, man, I can't wait to show it to my wife. She'd be just, she love, she'll love it. You have to make sure not to tell anything about it. Maybe she can she can guess. You're right. She can guess the movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll I'll give her the place card and she'll see if she can get her place card right instead of me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know for your listeners. We I guess you mentioned it in the other other podcast where we play like a clue game where we right, have yeah. a picture of all the the, uh, the characters on a card and they only have like a one word description like the writer, the professor, and then you. I do this thing for screenings that we've been doing where the audience can circle the characters they think will survive, and if you win after the movie, you get a prize. So we we, we haven't gotten anybody that's gotten exactly correct just yet. So that's what I was going to ask my next question. Has anybody got it right, and nobody has gotten it right so far? Okay, so here's the, here's the, here's the correct technical answer, is that no no audience member at all our screenings has gotten it correct, has, you know, has figured out who survives the film. But... Um, I showed the film to my sister, and she apparently guessed it. That, that's what she says. Ah, of course. Yeah. And she claims she has a superpower of always being able to figure out twist endings in movies and TV shows. Uh, but I think she was just doing that to be a pain in my ass. I don't think she really did. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I should have done, see, I, what I didn't do is I didn't have her do the contest. I should have had her show out the, the, you know, the card with the characters on it and who she thought would survive before she saw the film. All right. You know, because now, of course, she could just claim that, yeah, oh, I saw the ending coming. But, uh, but no, um, but uh, I feel very good about that. Again, I'm not a guy that sits around trying to figure out twists. This is like the one twist I get in my entire life, and apparently it worked for the movie. So uh, that's very gratifying. Uh, my last question for you, Dave, is do you ever play the, the board game Clue? Of course, yeah. That's a <laughs> Clue has definitely been an influence on uh, on me and on the film for sure. You know, I remember the movie Clue, um, you know, stuff like that. Like so, like, even like you know those uh, murder mystery dinner dinner party things that you go out. To, right. Like, yes. Like, yeah. Movie like dinner party uh, theater kind of thing. I love that stuff. You know, and, and obviously this is influenced by that. You know, and I don't think Tim and I have been shy about <laughs> wearing our influences on our sleeve when it comes to murder made easy. So. Absolutely. Well, Tim, I have to say thanks again for coming on. It was wonderful, um, and I hope you enjoy your Thanksgiving, man. 
Yeah, you too. I will because I'll be getting some more of that Jenny Robinson that she made in the movie. And uh, thanks again for having me on uh, the St. Paul Filmcast and for coming to our screening. And uh, yeah, hopefully.